Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast for people who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. And this is part two of our special dialogue with the real DEA narcos, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. These two real American heroes partnered with Colombian law enforcement to take down the world's number one narco-terrorist, Pablo Escobar. And as you probably know, their story is the basis for the smash hit from Netflix, Narcos. And if you loved Narcos, you're going to love this podcast series. If you haven't heard episode one, I would highly encourage you to start there and come back to this episode. Because on this second episode, you'll hear the conclusion of how Murph and Javier partnered with Colombian law enforcement to bring Escobar to justice. And not only do we get that conclusion, the real story of what happened and who was where and so forth, we also dig into their thoughts on leadership, management, and life. And these are two guys who not only have produced extraordinary results together in the service of their country, um, they've also become incredible friends. And you'll get to know them even more as individuals on this episode. Uh, go to Lockhead.com, check out the show notes to learn more about Murph and Javier. They have a new book out called Manhunters, which I highly recommend. And today, along with doing all the things they do, they're also public speakers and teachers. And I can tell you, if you need speakers for your event, uh, you want to check these guys out. Having spent um, some time with them here in Santa Cruz, they came in to do this episode live with me. It was great getting to know them, and they are riveting in person. Now, uh, according to McKinsey, 92% of C-level executives believe that their current business model will not be economically viable given the acceleration of what most people today are calling digital transformation. And that's why getting digital is a top priority for CEOs. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And that's what's made Splunk one of the fastest growing enterprise technology companies in history. So visit Splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything, so that you can learn how to turn data into doing and get your digital transformation into TurboDrive. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. And um, my friends at NetSuite are the platform for growth for high growth companies because successful entrepreneurs and C-level executives know that in order to grow, you must have the right platform, tools, and technologies. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or 10 million to hundreds of millions, NetSuite by Oracle is the platform form to turbocharge your growth. Uh, as a matter of fact, NetSuite is the number one cloud business system. And NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. And that can be you too. So why not schedule your free product tour and receive your free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite, business grows here. Now, Hey ho, let's go. You guys are working on this for six years. Well, three for me. Three for you. Six for me. Javier, six for you. 
And so maybe take me through, um, you know, the last couple years as you're sort of getting closer um, and how this thing. So in 91, he does this jail move. Right. He's a good boy for about a year or so. He starts behaving badly and then sort of take me through the next big several steps. Yeah, and then I'll let Steve finish up. Yeah, the the escape was great for us. We were happy. We were excited. You didn't want him in that quote-unquote jail. Exactly. No. Once he escaped, it's like we have another chance at getting him. And you got to remember, and I like what Colonel Martinez said, this was revenge. You know, uh, Escobar killed couple of good friends of ours. One of the first times we, anyway, killed a lot of good friends of ours. So it was it was personal. You personally, I mean, obviously he was he, killing thousands. Yeah, thousands, but we knew some of the people personally at the and, search block. That and that killed. personal connection to your friends. Yes. That's it it what can't help you, but yes, motivate you even more. Yes, that's what makes you keep going. And, you know, and we talked about it earlier is, hey, did we ever want to give up? Of course. We wanted to give up a lot of times when you would see the car bombs. You know, some people get killed. I mean, I used to go back and say, you know what? Let's just let him surrender. Let you know, We all go home. But then that personal side of it, you know what? We can't let it surrender. We can't give up. This guy, look at all the people he has killed. There's going to be some justice uh, in, in, in all of this. So we were happy when we escaped and we moved in. And it took us 18 months uh, to, uh, you know, when that final last last day. But that 18 months at the beginning, we should have had him. We, we were very close. We had great, uh, we had some Delta guys with us, SEAL Team 6 guys with us, best guys in the world. However, their orders from the Pentagon, they could not leave the base. So they so, would. So help me with that a little bit. First of all, there's only two of you. So right, if I'm right. in your shoes, do I, and I don't know shit about law enforcement or any of this stuff, but the fact that there's just two of you, aren't you going like, hey, uh, we could have some friends down here. Uh, and then when you do have Delta Force and, and, and the SEALs with you, but yet they're, they're literally tethered to the base. Yeah. Correct. As, as now the rules of engagement were. Right that we were not to leave the base either. And, and to give you perspective, a police base in Columbia is, is very similar to a U.S. military base here at home. Okay, so you've got your outer perimeters, your inner perimeters, the serpentine driveways, the guard posts, the pill box, the co- concrete pill boxes with machine guns in them, all that. Lost my train is it like a little city? Is it? Is yeah, it- it, it's a it's a it's a base. You know, there's a front entrance, and uh, you know, there's police uh, guards uh, there that are you know assigned to it. But you know, when when we moved in. We had quarters inside. We lived in, a, I think we shared one room with about 10 other guys. And you're uh, essentially doing surveillance, yes? It, we're helping out in anything that we could. Uh, intelligence uh, from the United States, money for informants, money for operations. So you're paying informants. Yeah, we're, we're, and you know what? One of the best things that we ever did is came up with a, a 800 number where we were offering a reward. For Pablo Escobar, he got up to $5 million. And the second time, people started calling us. But they wanted to talk to the two DEA agents, the two gringos. So Steve and I were, uh, wow, we took a lot of chances. And that, you know, we were, it was a setup against us that we would get killed. So first right, somebody th- would claim to know where he is, yeah, want the reward. And it would be a setup for us to get a right. shot. 
Yep. And we experienced, uh, so the police used to take care of us. We'd meet them outside the base at a bus station in Medellin. We'd, all right, what are you wearing? You know, we want to disguise ourselves, but eventually we were out there lots of times. And uh, the police were. Maybe if they hadn't sent you such guys. a tall white guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but anyway. How do you, in that situation, know with some level of certainty that you're not going to get killed by this person who's seeking the reward. You're off the base. You're right. That's why we had police uh, officers go with us undercover. They go check out the area first, make sure, Hey, there's no guns involved. There's no Sicarios involved. Once they cleared the area, we used to tell them for them, all right, what are you going to be wearing? You know, blah, 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 you know, all right, yellow shirt. So we go, but we'd always have about three or four guys around us. Mm-hmm. Make sure. I mean, that used to scare the shit out of me because, you know, uh, we did not know. But about, I don't know, about three out of 10 of those informants paid off. They had and at that point, you, you don't know where he is. Right. We had a lot of close calls at the beginning. Oh, getting back to Colonel Martinez. And there's a great, uh, when, uh, when the Delta guys, they have him located technically. You know, hey, here, Steve, here he is. And then we had a weak WAK colonel running the base. He did not want to go after Pablo Escobar. He always excuses. So he got to the point where we just, the ambassador would call me, accusing me of, hey, how come you're not doing your job? So we finally told him, and then uh, we put the band back together again. Mm-hmm. In other words, we brought back Martinez from out of the country, the, the original guys, because they hated Pablo Escobar, and that made a difference. And so at that point, you're getting better intelligence. We're on- getting great intelligence on Pablo Escobar. Then uh, it, it, and like we talked a little bit, but we came very close many times. But the, the people would protect Pablo Escobar. The, uh, he'd hear the choppers coming in. He'd be hiding in this mountainous area. So he knew we were always, you know, there was always a maid cooking for him and a young girl with him at the side he would hide out. And they used to tell us, yep, a maid in it. Why? Why was that? For his meals, and a young girl for obvious reasons. Obvious reasons. So the coffee would be. Yep, he heard the choppers coming, took off the back door. So that was the problem. But that was the only way of going after him when using choppers. And of course, he's not an idiot. He has pre-planned escape routes and hideouts. And would help him out. So they were hiding him. But uh, you know, I mean, and and towards. the end, uh, he was pretty much uh, weakening towards the end. He he wasn't established. He was unorganized. He was. We had done such a great job that he could not get to money. He could not have his assets. You were shutting down his yeah, supply lines. Yeah, we were arresting, killing. And when I talk about killing, I'm talking this guy would come after you with guns. So we were winning. He was very disorganized, and obviously, towards the end, he's trying to get his family out of Colombia, and uh, I'll let Steve walk you through the last days. He wanted to take his family to Frankfurt, Germany. Now, we don't know where they were going to go from there, but, uh, we, of course, we found out that the family was going, so we got together with Colombia National Police, and, and then the ambassador got involved, and we put undercover agents, both Colombian and American, on the flight uh, to to go to Frankfurt. and during Just that, a public flight, public it, it, yeah, was. it was, and it was kind of a spectacle when the, when they were going to the flight because word had gotten out to the public, so the press showed up. Of course, Harvey and I are there at the airport in El Dorado at, at the Bogota airport doing surveillance, and we've got you know it was great because I had a camera out and I fit in with all the photographers. You know, I could we had our long lens and 
we're taking pictures of the family and and just seeing who the associates. So this are. is not under cover of the night or anything. No. Like that. This is in public commercial flight. Everybody knows what's going on. The family's getting out of Dodge. This is a Lufthansa flight. You know, public airline. Uh, so our guys got to ride first class all the way to Frankfurt. And but what during that flight, what we wanted is we knew if he got his his family to a place of safety, then he's got nothing to distract him. He can focus on declaring the third war against the country of Colombia. Now think about that. Declare and that's what you war. thought he was getting ready to do. Oh, get his said, family out and then get down to business big time again. He said he was going to declare a war on the country like they'd never seen. And would this be that help me uh, lose a county or was this the second or third declaration of war? This would have been the third. Third, yeah. This would have been the third. So anyway, our ambassador in conjunction with the president of Colombia talking to the president of the United States and state department putting pressure on the government and in Germany you know, we didn't. We wanted them to uh, expel the family back to Colombia. It, it was a big battle. The Germans, you know, there was a faction that said yes. There's a faction that said no. We've learned a lot since then from agents who were assigned there at the time, who were actually at the airport when the family landed. Mm-hmm. That it, it went on into the night. I mean, mm-hmm. it was undecided. So they put the family in quarantine, and finally the Germans decided to expel the family. So the next day, shipped them right back to Colombia. So they make it to Germany, but they don't actually get into the country, so to speak. Right. They and they put them back customs. on a plane. Right. Never even cleared customs over there. So now when the family Didn't, comes- Excuse my ignorance, but wouldn't the United States government maybe have wanted to hold the family there or- The United uh, States has no jurisdiction in Germany. I know, but I mean, we the have United a- The United States didn't want the family because- Really? No, because we were using them as, we hate to say it, as bait- Back in Colombia, because he was communicating with the family. And by this time, we started intercepting his calls to the family. We So it was better for you guys to have him communicating with the family in the country. Yes, that's why we wanted the family back. So in that sense, the German government was helpful. Yeah, but I don't think they knew that. They just didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, hey, let's get rid of this. Let's get it off our plate. You know, we don't want to get involved in this. Yeah. So when he comes back, they uh, sequester the family into this five-star hotel in downtown Bogota. In the in the rooms, they have these apartment suites, you know. And the attorney general's office was providing security inside the hotel. Funny thing is, when the Escobar family moved in, all the other residents moved out because <laughs> they were afraid groups were going to bomb the hotel. And that starts was, to get scary, right? Oh, that's <laughs> a legitimate concern. <laughs> so. Now, the telephone technology, and this is what uh, a lot of people find a little bit amazing, is we didn't have 3G, 4G phones, like 5G phones like we have now. This is now what, 92, 93? 93, mm-hmm. December 93. We're in November, early December. We, the, basically, the telephones that he was using were radio telephones. They were operated off of radio frequencies. Yeah. So if, you know, if he wants to thwart our efforts to listen to him, all he's got to do is change the frequency. Right, because there's thousands of frequencies. Because they're essentially sophisticated walkie-talkies, right? Very That's sophisticated. Exactly it's HF it radios is basically what it is. Yeah. And if you know anything about the, the radio spectrum, there's thousands of frequencies he can choose from. But here's the challenge. The people that he wants to talk to, he has to get them the new frequency so they can communicate, right? And how do you tell them which frequency to use? you got to use the old frequency to get to the new frequency. That's exactly right. So you got to send messengers. Well, it just so happened that we didn't know his new frequency. Pablo is used to calling the president of Colombia, the members of Congress, the press. They would all talk to him. Now nobody will talk to him. Nobody wants to touch this guy with a 10-foot pole. So just think about it. who would talk to him, his family. Right. right. So now here's his son, Juan Pablo. This kid's probably about 17 years old during this time, and he's got his father calling him, and he's telling him, 
You call the president of Columbia giving this message, and you call the members of Congress, especially from our district, and you tell them I said this and this is what I want, and you call the members of the press and you tell them if they don't print what I say, I'm going to declare a war on this country like you've never seen before, which would have been number three. Right. Okay. Well, now, this guy over here, Javier, my partner, is he is, uh, and this is in all sincerity, is the best cop I've ever met in my life when it comes to recruiting informants. He's had a lot of them killed, so it's a dangerous occupation working for him, right? <laughs> but, I mean, he really is. So he happens to have an informant that's on the security detail at the Tacandama Hotel where the family's located. This, this informant's walking by one day when Juan Pablo's talking to Daddy. He looks, you know, the informant looks down. He sees the frequency on the phone that's being used, memorizes it, calls Javier, passes it to him. We pass it to the CIA who had, had the capability of, of listening to, to devices like that. We passed it to the Colombian National Police. Got a hundred percent confirmation. That's Pablo. We got his new frequency. So Javier, you cultivate this informant. Yes, he was part of the. I, I'm not. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to mention because uh, I mean this guy was eventually killed. But anyway, yeah, we cultivated this informant, gave us the frequency, like Steve said, and yes. And you had, in order to do that, you had to build a personal relationship, a relationship of trust, give motivate this guy to be willing to do this and and risk his life and yes, ultimately that cost is correct. His motivate life. him and obviously knowing that he may eventually get killed uh, which like I said later on after they find out they killed him yes so we'll, maybe we'll get to this a little bit later but okay. that's an incredible skill you have to get people <laughs> to do that but we'll get to there so so let's go back to those those final days so now you've got the radio frequency right so you know it's great that we know what his frequency is but what we want to know is where is he where is he? You know, now there's uh, the 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 technology that was that existed back then was um, use radio directional finding equipment. The government of France donated a bunch of these vans that contained contained all this RDFing equipment in it, and in hopes of helping to capture Pablo. the The theory of the equipment was called triangulation. Okay, so triangulation tells you you come at it from three points where those three lines intersect. That's where your signal's emanating from, right? But the margin of error was very large back then. Mm -hmm. There's a there was a lieutenant with the Columbia National Police, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, who happens to be the son of Colonel Hugo Martinez, our boss in Medellin. He's the head of the search block, right? Wow. So the lieutenant teaches himself how to use. He's a very intelligent young man, great personality. I mean, he was one of our best friends. He's dead now. Also, he was killed about ten years ago, or ten years after Pablo yeah. was. But he teaches himself how to use the RDFing equipment. Now, because the margin of error was so large, the way you refine that margin of error is you go in using a handheld antenna with a meter. And the way you use that handheld antenna is you ride down the street holding it out the window. Well, there's nothing obvious about that, is there? Sent me see every day, right? Mm -hmm. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so he's. Looks weird to me, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just a new radio system. Who knows? These kids today. Yeah. So anyway. Lieutenant Martinez is driving down the street, and in his first attempt, he sent he sent this elite unit that we work with, the Dehean unit. He sent them to a warehouse. Oh, it was an empty warehouse. It was a, a bogus hit. So, but, but at the time, you guys thought maybe this is it. We're going well, to get them. We thought that was it. And you show up, and it's an empty warehouse. Well, they do. I'm back at the base. Javier's up in Miami because yeah. the ambassador made him go chain a, chase a bullshit lead. I can tell you about that later. So, um, the, the, now can you imagine the ribbing the lieutenant got from his his partners. <laughs> I thought you said he was in here, you know. You guys captured an empty warehouse. Hey, Congratulations, you bastards. Day. Yeah. 
So what the lieutenant did is he he realized there's a bot there was a body of water there and and, a, and water will cause radio waves to bounce. Yes. So he recalibrated his equipment, took that into consideration, and his next finding, he's driving down the street and his little meters telling him to to look to the left. In his own words, he looks up and he says he sees Pablo Escobar on the phone looking out the window. And he's on the street? Yeah, well, Pablo's in an apartment in a, so a roadhouse and the lieutenant's in a car driving down the street with the driver. And remember, he's got to say antenna. Yeah, he's like, and he says that Pablo looks at him as he's driving down the street. Now we've this lieutenant was a really good friend of ours, and and afterwards we had a lot of conversations about if he saw you, why didn't he react? Why didn't he run immediately? Because the troops weren't in position then to do the assault. And the only thing we've ever come up with is, you know, when you're talking on the phone and you're really engrossed in your conversation, you're looking at things, but you're not seeing them because you're in your mind thinking about your conversation, right? And the only thing we can think of is that that was what happened, that he's he's looking at the lieutenant but not realizing what he's seeing. So it just didn't – he was maybe engrossed in a conversation, and it just didn't register in Pablo's mind how unusual this scene was on the street below him, and he just kept talking, and that was that? Right, and he now he's talking to his son because he's giving his son instructions on what to tell president, the member of Congress, and the press, you know. So he's distracted. So his guard was down because he's distracted in a conversation. Right. Because if he had seen that, he would have gotten out of Dodge again. If he had moved at that moment, he would have gotten away because the lieutenant had to call the troops in, and that took a few minutes. Now, there's about an eight to Because you're not going to try and take down Pablo by yourself. That's not a really safe thing Bad idea, right. (laughs) And, And so now here's... The other thing, you know, at one point, Pablo had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. He's got a small army. That's what we expected that day. We expected a major firefight against Pablo and all the Sicarios he had. So now this this 8 to 10 man unit, the Dahin unit, the guys that we work with, they were close by. They came in and they, they put people in the front and the back. And as they're doing that, the lieutenant's calling his dad back at the base and saying, hey, he's on the radio. He says, hey, I just saw Pablo. I, it's 100% confirmation. It's him. So we're loading up the 600 troops back at the base to come out and offer support. Well, you just don't load 600 guys in two minutes, right? You got to get the trucks out, the Jeeps. You got to issue weapons and ammo. You got to make sure everyone's accounted for, ever give assignments. It takes a little bit to load that many people up and get them on the road. So in the meantime, the the colonel told his son, he said, listen, you know, secure the site, try not to engage, but if you have to, don't let him get away. Well, these guys had been trained by by the Delta guys and the SEALs how to use debt corps to blow doors. The Columbians, the 600 Columbians. Well, no, this this elite unit, this eight to 10 man unit. Uh, Yes, but the the U.S. guys trained the Columbians to be able to take them down. They've been preparing for this for a long time. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. For 18 months. Yeah. So they, they wired debt cord to the front door of this row house. Now, this is a three-story row house. And, and, of course, row houses touch each other. And the row house behind this three-story was a two-story house, okay? So, and that will come into play here in a second. So they blow the front door. That leads into a garage and a kitchen combination. That's strange. I mean, you're, <laughs> there was a car parked right there at the kitchen counter. That's where I like to park my car. Apparently. So <clears throat> you must be parked Columbia. I don't know. <laughs> from Medellin. So anyway, they do a quick search of that first floor and Pablo's on the second floor. So they start making their way up. And so he starts making his way up to the third floor because he realizes they're coming for him. Now, and how, how many guys are breaking into his place at this point? It's about a six man team, six to eight guys. And then there's a couple guys on the backside on the, on the backside of the house. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now this is where it really surprised us. He only had one bodyguard with him that day. 
This is a guy who used to have 500 bodyguards, right? And so wh- why do you think that was the case, Murph? Because we had whittled his organization down to where he didn't have the resources. And he the was assets. just that weak. He was down to that point, believe wow. it or not. So, you know, he, the bodyguard runs up to the third floor first. Now there's a window at the top of the stairwell there. And that leads out to the roof of the second story row house behind the building that Pablo was Got in. Got okay? it. So the, the bodyguard jumps out that window down to the second roof, uh, second floor roof, makes his way across the roof thinking he's going to jump off and escape. When the cops on the back side of the house order him to stop, he shoots at him. They blow him right off the roof. He lands on the ground dead. And so now Pablo's all by himself. He's all alone. And he's at, on the third story at this point? He's up the third story. One of the officers that was on the assault team told us that um, as he was starting to ascend the steps to go up to the third floor, Pablo shot at him, and he tripped on the steps, which saved his life. The bullet went over his head. So no good guys were hurt that day. None of them, none of them were even uh, injured. So there was not one good guy hurt the Correct. day Pablo Escobar went down. Correct. So now Pablo jumps out that same third story window to the second on the yep. roof of the two story behind it. You know he knows his bodyguards already been engaged in a firefight, so he's you know pretty cognizant that there's there's going to be another firefight because there's cops down there. He's trying to make his way along. I assume the he's wall. got a rifle. He's got two handguns, two nine millimeter pistols. Double that's sh- it. He's got a double shoulder holster rig. Like, that's it. That's it. He doesn't have a machine gun. Doesn't even have shoes. AK on. something. He's got his jeans and a t-shirt on is what he's wearing. Barefoot. Yep. And now he's on the roof barefoot and he's got two, you said nine millimeters. Yeah. Now he knows if he stays up against the building of the three story next to the two story, he he's safe from the guys on the ground, but he also knows the good They're guys coming. are coming to that third story window and he's, he's going to be dead. You know, he's going to be dead. So he tries to make a break across it. The guys get to the third floor window. The guys on the ground see him. They couch him in a crossfire. He struck three times that day. He struck once in the back of the leg, once in the butt cheek, and once through the ear. Now, the the leg and the butt cheek shots were not kill shots. They were knockdown shots. You know, he may have eventually bled out, but it didn't hit an, uh, an artery or anything significant like that. The kill shot was in the ear. There's a lot of speculation how that happened. Was now, it from the one of the uh, guys on the roof? I assume, or it was from the cops. Yeah, no, that I that part I understand. But there's guys above him and guys below him. He just he got shot. It was just. But do we know who 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 which which group of guys shot him? Yeah, it was one of the guys that came. That was on the third floor up that top. Came out of, yeah, but you know, there's speculation that because we had Delta and SEAL Team Six, that they had a sniper out there. Could they have made a shot like that? Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind that those guys are phenomenal. You know, Javier mentioned to you a while ago, we think they're the studs of the world. In fact, we tell the world if we're ever kidnapped, that's who we want to come and get us because we've seen what they can do. SEAL Team 6 and six Delta, Delta Force. Yep. I mean, just super guys. And we've stayed in contact with several of them over the years and and still super people. But anyway, we know it wasn't. Now, people say, how, do, how can you make that claim that you know it wasn't a U.S. special operator out there that took that shot? Because if you watch the show Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. That's not true. That's Hollywood. I was back at the base. There was nobody out there but Columbia National Police officers. You were not there. And obviously, Javier, were you still in in Miami? Miami. And I rode out to the scene with Colonel Martinez after the fact. That's how I got to the scene. Now, how do I know that the operators were not out there? Because when it all started going down, I was standing in the room talking to them. We've got to be close friends with these guys. We've been living together for 18 months. You know, it's nice to 
talk to somebody from your own country every once in a while, right? Just because it's like a little taste of home. Sure. So, and I'm not taking anything away from those guys. They're like I say, they are the studs of the world. But I know where they were. So, the, you know, and, and that's a big. Point so the for Colombian us. police took them down. And that's you know big, it for a fact. No question in my mind. And, and it was one of those police officers up, up top on the third floor that must have taken him down with that shot to the ear. Is that what you're telling me? That's what we believe. Now, that's one of the big points we make in, in, you know, in every, every interview we do, every road show we do in our book. We give the Colombian National Police the credit. People tell Javier now, you guys are true American heroes, man. You helped bring down Pablo Escobar. Well, we did, but we're not heroes. We were just doing our job. The real heroes are the Colombian National Police because they took their country back from this piece of crap. That's the truth. Now, his son is trying to promote this theory out there now, you know, from Europe or wherever he is, that his father committed suicide. You know, Javier and I were both local cops before we became federal agents. I'm trained. I've been trained in murder and suicide investigations. I've worked both. When there's a suicide by gun, you know, when you, when you fire a bullet, there are little bits of gunpowder that follow the bullet out the barrel. And it travels a certain distance until they lose their velocity and they fall to the ground. If you shoot yourself in the ear, I mean, even if you could do it at arm's length, first of all, that'd be a miraculous shot. But more likely, if you were going to do it, you'd put the gun up close to hit yourself in the ear. Go look at the pictures. They're all over the Internet. There's not a single powder burn on the, on the side of Pablo's head because those burning pieces of gunpowder would have struck his skin and left little little black marks. Go examine the photographs yourself. See if you see any. If you do, call me. Because The I shot was seen. taken at distance is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you don't have to be a ballistics investigative guru to know that. Well, you know, and there's there's a, a company we did an interview with in London, wasn't London. it? Uh, several months ago. And they said, and their theory is that what the son is saying is true. And I, and I explained to them exactly what I just explained to you. They said, well, what if he held the gun against his skin and against his ear? Would that prevent the powder burns? And quite honestly, I'd never thought about that. I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's true. But I don't know if you've ever seen gunshot wounds. The entry wound is usually the size of the caliber of the bullet. So if it's nine millimeter, it's a little bitty hole. But the exit wound is always massive. Now, think about this. If you had the barrel of the gun against your ear and fired that shot, the compression from the explosion of that bullet would have blown out the left side of his head. And that's not what you find. What you find is the exit wound is just slightly bigger than the entry wound. So that's not true either. All this is is a sun. Well, the other thing I would think is there'd be a nine millimeter pistol lying next to his body. Well, there were two because they shot him dead. He still has guns. But, um, I mean, you can look at them. One of the slides locked back, which mm-hmm. that's how when you're shooting a semi-automatic, when you run out of bullets, the slide, automa- the slide automatically locks back. So this is just the son trying to change the legacy of his father. So you're convinced, clearly, that it was one of those Colombian police officers that, that ultimately got this done. Without a doubt. Right. Yeah. And we've talked to him, and we pretty much know who. I mean, he claims he's the one who shot him, but it was part of the search block a uh, Colombian police officer. And you knew that officer? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. He's, he lived with this guy every day. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And so the courage these guys exhibited in those moments, because like you were saying, maybe they didn't expect 500, but they sure as hell didn't expect one bodyguard and, right. and, and two nine millimeter guns on uh, right. 
They expected a firefight, of course, but with more people. uh, And they were concerned about being outgunned. That's why the cavalry was coming behind them, right? Yep. And I think, uh, right, I mean, the colonel told his son, wait for the backup to get it. In (laughs) other words, the colonel and the son said, screw this, we're going in. And that's what actually uh, was able to get Pablo Escobar by the son making that decision to go in. You know, is there anything else about sort of the end of Pablo Escobar and those moments that you want to share? Well, um, you know, I was on the roof when the military showed up and then the the press start showing up. And for whatever reason, I had on a bright red polo shirt that day with my jeans. You know, so, so me being white, I was sticking out enough. But now I got a red shirt on. <laughs> um, and so, the you know, we decided that I needed to get back to the base, that let's let the Colombians have the glory. We don't want. Anybody to think that the United States is the one that took out Pablo Escobar. So they assigned a security detail and they, you know, escorted me back to the base. Now that night we went into total lockdown because we were expecting retaliation attacks because of the death of Pablo. Right. You thought maybe World War Three was going to rain down on you guys, right? Quietest night I ever spent in Medellin. I mean, there was nothing. It was quiet. The next day, Javier's back in country. They fly him up and pick him up in a gunship. They come over. There's a big celebration because now you got to remember, I've been there three years. He's been there six years with these guys. I mean, is this very and those are friends. long years, right, Harry? Right, right. So we we did all the high fiving and everything, and then they flew us back out on a gunship over to the airport. We flew back to Bogota. Got back I don't know what five or six p.m. It was a Friday evening. Normally the embassy's closed by this time, but we're going back to the office because my wife's working in the embassy there. Uh, turns out her and another wife, DEA agent's wife, had planned this big party. They got our office decorated up with streamers and balloons mm-hmm. and posters and wow. several cases of beer and pizzas. And, and the party <laughs> started about 6.30, and we all got home about 10 a.m. the next morning. It was an all-nighter. <laughs> and to quote Prince, were you partying like it was 1999? <laughs> of course. Whew. It took a while. So what does that feel like when it's, uh, you know, six years for you and three years for you? And, and it's 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 not what anybody in civilian life would recognize no. as if, you know, if you said, hey, I'm going to spend six years working on a right. startup or working on doing so. You know what? I mean, obviously, it was a lot of, uh, I mean, justice had been served. And, you know, and on the personal level, of course, we're all happy. But you got to remember is all the innocent people, why? Just being at the wrong place at the wrong time, the police officers. I said, we were at a funeral. We had eight bodies at the church killed by Pablo Escobar, eight police officers. So it, it was personal. We learned a lot. We, like you said, the end of Pablo Escobar meant that, you know, this was revenge, obviously, you know, saw the people that he killed. And uh, uh, we tell people, you know, the, the real heroes were the Colombian National Police, Colonel Martinez, his son, Lieutenant Martinez, all those guys. But it, it was a great feeling. It was a feeling of justice. It was a feeling for the, all the innocent people uh, that he killed. So it's one of those I don't know, one of those cases, one of those life lessons that we learned is how how does a person become this massive monster, this massive part of evil? And, uh, you know, if we would have given up, Pablo Escobar would have won. But he said we we never gave up. Yeah. You know, for me, my wife had been by herself in Bogota for the 18 months that I'm in Medellin. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I got a tough wife. She's, She's a tough girl. 
Been married 35 years now. Does she still drive a motorcycle? (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you, how can you not love a woman that owns her own motorcycle? Uh, Any woman who rides a motorcycle is a gal that I'm happy to meet. She was okay in my book. She's just just a tough lady. She didn't let any of it get down. You know, she she stayed working in the embassy until we adopted our first daughter, and then she became a stay-at-home mom. Um, but And that was in October of 93, and he wasn't killed until December. So now we've got this new baby girl that I'm not even getting to visit with because we're still up there chasing Pablo. So you can imagine, once he was done, we took a, a two-week vacation for Christmas, came home. You know, our families got to meet our new daughter. I have two sons from prior marriage, and so we get to visit with them as well. They were teenagers at that time. Um, so, it, you know, it shows in Narca. I got to mention this one thing because I'm really proud of her. She's she's uh, just a one of a kind. And so in, in season two, episode one, I think it is, they show that she and I get in a fight, and they're showing that we've already adopted the baby in Narcos, and and we hadn't, but you know we did eventually. And a lot of creative license with the show. Is that oh, what you're telling me? <laughs> well, everything except Javier's sex life. That was all true, but that's a different story. Every single one of those ladies. <laughs> of, uh, course. You, you, of course. Of course. You entertained yes. all of those ladies. Yes, they're all true, buddy. Well, you are a very, very handsome uh <laughs> As we like to say, suave, suave and deboner kind of a guy. <laughs> please don't just tell me. Please tell the rest of us. <laughs> I was, uh, I'll tell the whole world. I'm I was, old, I'm bad, I'm great. <laughs> I was expecting Javier to be very, very handsome, and he was even more handsome than I thought he was going to be. How much did I owe you? What did I promise you there? <laughs> but anyway, it shows that, that she and I get in a fight and that she takes the baby and goes back to Miami. That's well, not true. I mean, she stayed in Columbia the entire time I was there, except mm. our normal trips back to, to the United States. Right. And the funny part of that is, as Netflix would write, as the writers would write an episode, they'd email it to Javier and I, and we'd read through it and pick out little things to try to make it a little bit more accurate on screen. And so because her character is portrayed in Narcos, you know, they used her real name and everything, she got to read their scripts as well. Mm. So she reads that. I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, crap, I'm going to hear about this one. So I give it to her and, you know, and I'm off doing something else. And all of a sudden I hear her yelling, did you read this? Did you read this? this is bullshit. Did you read this? script? I've never left you down there. And I'm looking at her going, baby, I didn't write the stupid thing. Okay. <laughs> it's not. <me." laughs> Why did they want to write it that way as opposed to the real way that it happened? Because everything in Hollywood, think about it, TV Just and movies. Make it more dramatic. Conflict. It's, yeah. It showed me and Javier mm-hmm. fighting, pushing each other around. We've never even had a disagreement. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just getting to know you guys, yeah. of course, but we spent almost 24 hours right, together right. now. And like, you guys seem like brothers who love each other to me. That's my <laughs> experience. That's like I told you today. I'll kill for that man. And I'll yeah. kill he'd do the same for me. I, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Artistic and, uh, licenses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Netflix. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe let's go there a little bit. Uh, you know, how do, how do you like the Netflix series? You know what? I, I love the series. I, you know, and I told Steve when it first came out, I said, no one's going to watch this. It's going to be a flop. Yeah. It's going to be the worst. <laughs> Why do you think it was going to be a there. flop? I, mean, I, I started, wa- I, you know, and I'll be honest, I haven't seen all of it. You know, I've seen two or three. I don't know. I'll, I'll watch it in its entirety when I'm ready. But I said, man, this is a lot of, you know, and we knew the literary artistic licenses, but then, all of a sudden we start getting calls from people i mean i I know when it came out i got a couple of calls from guys i you know 
Javier, that's a great series. I said, what? Oh, we love it. We're hooked on it. Then all of a sudden, the world audience, the, the Europeans, uh, Australians, Indians. it was like, yeah, Indians. Many it Latin Americans, high, right? Yes. Yeah. It was like in high demand back there. And I'm like, wow, maybe people are going to watch. Remind it. me what year it started, the f- season one. 15? 15, 16, 15. Yeah. And you know, the creator of Narcos is Eric Newman, and one of his executive producers is Chris Brancato, and the writers, Zach Kalig and Paul Epstein, and I mean, all those writers are phenomenal. They're extremely intelligent. You know, when Hunger and I got to the writer's room out in Hollywood to work with them, they had a library of books that I thought we knew everything about Escobar and the Medellin Cartel. They had books that I'd never even heard of. Wow. And they were conversant. But they also have a little bit of a sick side to them because some of the things they came up with, like, you know, hanging my cat from my door in Bogota when my wife and I first arrived there, that was pretty heinous. You know, <laughs> we did have a cat and the cat did die in Colombia, but his name is Puff. Puff was old. He had a heart attack. You know, it wasn't the Sicarios broke in and sacrificed him on our front door. But I mean, we but were, they, they thought little things like that would make the tension more exciting for the viewer is that what you think was going on or yes i mean that and that's what in you know no i we can't mention any names but a higher up with a netflix uh told us he said guys i saw one one episode and i ordered another series just on on seeing one that compelling yeah that compelling right now we're going into season five it's going to be released released later this month wow and uh, Javier, you know, I don't want you to go anywhere you don't want to go. I, I respect your feelings and your experience mm-hmm. tremendously. Uh, but I do want to ask, yeah. y- you're not ready to watch all yeah, of I it. I mean, I started watching it. Uh, like, like I said, I, I'm always thinking of some of the guys who got killed. You yeah. know, and I always think, you know, what what credit did they get? What, 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 what are their families doing now? I had one of the majors. In fact, uh, the major, we talked about eight bodies. Being at the church, yeah. Uh, his daughter, about five years ago, I was still on the job, and she's a police officer now with the Columbia National Police. Called me up, says, "Mr. Pena, I want to talk to you. I never knew my dad. I was a baby when he got mm. killed. And can you talk to me?" And she even visited me. I was stationed in Puerto Rico. You know, I told her about her dad. But it's stuff like this. The the first captain, and we mentioned him in the book. You know, we sent him on a mission after Escobar. He got dismembered. You know, uh, so it's stuff like that that I just said. You know what? When I'm ready, I'll I'll watch. Yeah, yeah, uh, makes all the sense yeah. in the world. And do you feel? Like, I know. You know, there's a lot of talk in the military about PTSD and so forth. Do you relate to those sorts of feelings and uh, that that? we hear about with people who've been in the military or had other ser- no, seriously I, traumatic. I, I think about it. I mean, and the, the second time I went back, it's when really, cause I was getting hammered in the press about being with Los Pepes. And it got to the point where, you know, the, the, you do two years and I was supposed to stay for another two years. I said, I couldn't cause I, I'd wake up at night choking, couldn't breathe. You know, I was getting those panic attacks mm-hmm. And I, you know, I mean, I obviously went to the doctor, uh, but it, it wasn't worth. It wasn't worth it. So I left after two years. Yeah, no, I'm fine now. Maybe that's why I drink pretty much every uh, day. Uh, <laughs> well, you and me both, brother. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's how, I saw a lot of wine bottles there at your house. 
<laughs> you know, I, I don't know if he really said it, but that that Benjamin Franklin quote, you know, beer is proof that uh, uh, God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> that is, you know what? I agree with that. <laughs> Another sort of area I'd love to sort of explore with both of you. You you are guys who have learned a tremendous amount in a forty year career. And you now have this new life as as educators. Uh, you're now celebrities at at some level, and you've got this hit show and this 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 uh, you know Narcos on Netflix. Plus, you guys are traveling around doing your thing, and so you have this whole other uh, phase of your life. And it seems to me, as somebody getting to know you guys, is somewhat, if not completely, unexpected. But but how does your life feel today? <laughs> you know what? This is the last thing I ever thought we'd be doing in retirement. You know, when when they first called us, what uh, most people don't know is we talked to two producers and turned them down. And when Eric Newman called us about Narcos, the initial conversation, I turned him down on the phone. So it, we just thought, so, so help me with that. Netflix calls you. And at the time, Netflix is. Well, we didn't know it was Netflix. Oh, you didn't know. No, it was just Eric. And, and he didn't have an agreement with Netflix yet. I oh, guess. I see. It was being negotiated. But I mean, he's, you know, he had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, so he couldn't reveal that kind of information. But um, you know, when he flew to Washington with two writers and I met him for dinner and, and Hunter and I did our research on him and, you know, Eric's father's Randy Newman who wrote all the jingles for the older movies. So he grew uh, up in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and an LA treasure, a music yeah. treasure. Oh, absolutely. And they're, you know, they're well-educated, they're successful writers. And, and when we met, um, I mean, you, you can tell I like to bust chops a little bit. So I just like to have fun. And, uh, and I walked right up to the table and, you know, you can, as a cop, you can just pick out people you're looking for. I don't know how it works. You just can. And I walked up and just attacked them, you know, verbally. And they, and you can see, first of all, they get this like deer in the headlights look. And then they realize who I am and they start smiling. And th- there was no tension. Our personalities clicked from that point forward. Just, you know, they told us everything we wanted to hear. And so Javier and I discussed it. And we agreed to, to move forward. And that's, you know, we signed contracts. I met them in. Talked to him in February of 13. In March, we had dinner. In May, we signed contracts. In June, I retired. In July, we're sitting in Hollywood in the writer's room. Wow. I was, And so when I told my family I'm retiring, I was a cop for 38 years. I don't know how to do much else. Right. right? So when I told my family that I was going to retire from DEA, every single, I've got two sons, two daughters, my wife, everybody in my family was shocked. My oldest son called me, <laughs> and he's like, Dad, you are DEA. What the heck are you going to do next? You know, and so I told him what we're working on. And uh, we were, su- you know, supremely surprised that it was as successful as it was. Uh, um, that led into our speaking business, which Javier started this back when we were on the job on a very small scale. And I got involved with him. And, and we were speaking to mostly law enforcement groups. And it was, what, maybe once or twice a year? Twice a year, yeah. Then when, when you're, we were You're a little busier now, aren't you guys? <laughs> yeah, we're averaging about 75 shows a year, right? And we just started our fifth year doing this. So now we're- And how do you like being on stage? Uh, you know what? It, it's great. At the beginning, I, I'd get nervous. But now, but it's, you know, we know the topic. Yeah, <laughs> we know the exactly. topic. And uh, we uh, we like to talk about it. You know, I tell people it's part of history. There's a lot of lessons learned, a lot of uh Things that we could have done better, and uh, it's just uh, you know what. But we want people to know the real history. Yeah, the a truth. lot of yeah, the a lot truth. of people think this is all made up. You know what? I wish it would have been made up. It's not. It happened, and it, it was even worse in real life. The show didn't depict 
the violence that actually happened. It was, like I said, worse in real life. So, like I said, part of, you know, we study history to learn, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, But it's, uh, we could have done a lot of things better. We learned a lot of lessons. And uh, So let's talk about some about of those it. some of those lessons. And, you know, obviously you have great lessons for, for people in law enforcement. Uh, but getting to know you guys a little bit, you have some life lessons and some, some business and management and leadership lessons uh, because you – uh, performed incredibly under massive pressure for many, many years in the face of great personal risk to yourselves and potentially your families. And so what are some of the key learnings maybe about life and about leadership and, and management? Yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first. I mean, I was, uh, I was the agent in charge of San Francisco, DEA. For DEA. Where, yeah, where we had- For four or five years? years. Yep. Four years, where I had I ran about three hundred people, and I was the agent in charge for the Caribbean, which is a hybrid. It's part domestic and part the Caribbean countries. About three hundred, and I finished my career in Houston, where I had six hundred people, and I had the Southwest border. So, being a a leader, I've you know when we first started off, you know what? When I had a boss that I liked, I wanted him to look good, so I would work extra hard to make my boss look good. But now as being uh, leaders and I know, and Steve was, uh, you know, I mean, he had a different type with a uh, Washington, <laughs> with a Washington bureaucracy, but with, with the field people, you learn that, you know what? Uh, and you can equate it to any type of business. When you see your, your young agent working his butt off out there, and you bring him up, and this is one of the lessons I learned. You bring him up as you're the boss, you're the CEO, right? You bring him up, you want it, you want a briefing, what happens? Oh, everybody gets involved. His manager, his middle manager, and my rules. Well, now they can be there, but I do not want them to say a word. I want to hear it from the guy who's on the street. And you know what? When you see his face open up, it's like, what? The big boss wants to me to brief him on his case. That in the case could be the biggest, <laughs> I hate to say it, bullshit case, but it's just letting him tell you about it. His eyes, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's great. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of leadership lessons going out there, uh, uh, you know, to the field uh, as a big boss. And, uh, you know, after I retired, one of the guys came and said, boss, you know, we, we respected you because you came out with us. Even though I'm in the background, I'm not getting involved, right? But, yeah, but they, it's so they, interesting you say that because, you know, as a former CMO, uh, the marketing job in a corporation is one where you don't necessarily have to be in the field. You know, in the sales job, typically sales leadership, uh, sales management is expected to be in the field. Marketing management, at least in the tech world, some maybe, some no. But I spent, you know, 40, 50% of my time in the field because I felt, and maybe and this is leading to a question, I felt mm-hmm. if you weren't out in the field with salespeople, with customers, you didn't really know what was going on in the business. And so what was it about you as you got to be kind of a very yeah. senior executive? As a senior executive, and you learn from being out there with, like I said, the salespeople, you learn what their problems are. You learn what solutions are available. And they're the ones who know what's going on. You're sitting up there on top. You don't know what this person, and the perfect example I use is in Medellin, uh, there's a young analyst, 
you know, and I remember walking into the to the war room and he said, Mr. Pena, we had just hired him. I think one of Escobar Sicarios is in the United States, in New York. And the colonel that was with him laughed. He said, Javier, don't believe him. This guy's not over there. So I go back at night. And sure enough, his information, he had a phone number and we located the Sicario. But if I hadn't gone in, talked to that low person, because remember, they know what's going on. I don't. I'm sitting on top over here at, at this office. So that's that's one of the lessons I've always learned. Those those guys at the bottom are going to be the ones that are here. No, you know, are going to yeah. tell you what's right and wrong. Yeah. What what pops to mind for you, Mer? Well, at different levels. So when we were in Colombia, you know, we did, we weren't really assigned to leadership roles. We're there to assist the Colombian National Police, but so you're kind of an advisor, or in right. that sense, or a consultant. Yes, right. And so, you know, our rules of engagement said we were not allowed to leave the base. Well, we decided at the beginning we can't do our job doing that. So we continued to go outside the base on operations and everything. And that's how so you, you broke the rules every time you left the base. Every single time. Every single time. And you and left it, the base a lot. Every single day. Because <laughs> there's so many things going on. The bad guys aren't in the base, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, there might have been a couple. But <laughs> that's another story at a bar. Um, so anyway, that's how you earn the trust and respect of your counterparts. And, and, you know, you don't look at it as a leadership role, but you're actually demonstrating leadership techniques at that point because you're out there with them. Now, take it later on in life. I ran the uh, – I actually got to develop what's called the Atlanta Strike Force in Atlanta. This kind of surprised me. I, I try to come in with a positive attitude, and I'm, a, and I'm an executive in an executive position at this time, but I'm not at the top executive position in the field. I'm like a second level and we're off site, you know, and, and I've got, I've just got some kick-ass investigators. These guys are just kicking butt and taking names. They're seizing thousands of kilos of Coke, thousands of pounds of meth, thousands and thousands of pounds of weed, millions and millions of dollars in cash and assets. And I mean, you just, don't have any of that weed around, do you? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk to you after this interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> But um, so, I, you know, you came, I always tried to come in with an upbeat attitude, and that could be as simple as walking in the door with a smile and speak to people. And I made it a habit of every day, at least once, walking the entire office. And there was, at this time, there's probably 115 people in this one particular office. And just stop and say, hey, how's your weekend? You know, how's your family? How's the new baby? You know, just making small talk, but showing an interest in your people. When I realized how significant that was, one day I came back from a, a an intensive meeting down at DEA headquarters and, and there were some issues going on with other people. And I had a lot of things on my mind and I walked in the door and I didn't smile and I didn't speak to a soul. I went straight to my office and, and got busy on what I needed to get done. It wasn't 15 minutes. One of my supervisors come to the mm. door and knocks. He said, Hey boss, everything okay? I'm like, yeah, everything's okay. I've just got a lot to do. Uh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Why do you ask? Well, you know, everybody saw you come in the door and you didn't speak to a soul and you weren't smiling. Everybody's just worried something's wrong with you. Yeah. And and so that told me how through, you know, your leadership style, you've developed the trust of the people that work for you to the point that they're concerned simply because you didn't speak or smile at anybody when you walked in. So that was that was a learning lesson for me. And then you get to the top level and I've always looked at it that as the higher you move in the ranks, and, and Javier and I were promoted to what we call the senior executive service in the federal government. We had to be approved by the attorney general. Uh, the next step would have been a presidential appointment, so you're at the highest levels you can go. And I'm not saying that as a, as a bragging point. It's just a fact. 
the way I look at it, it ain't is, bragging if it's the truth. True, that's true. I never thought of it like that. But that's true. So simply because you've been elevated to a higher position doesn't make you smarter than everybody else, and it doesn't make you any more important. It's just that you now have different responsibilities, and your responsibilities when you're at the top, in my opinion, is to provide the resources and the work environment for the people that are under you and give them the opportunity to do their job. Because what I found in federal law enforcement, especially in DEA, our people, as you can imagine, there's a ton of type A personalities out there. Um, and corralling them can be <laughs> a challenge all in itself. But uh, the vast, vast majority, if 80 plus percent, want to do their job if you'll let them do the job. You know, I used to also tell my supervisors who reported directly to me, when you think you know everything there is about this job, let me know. Because I want you out. <laughs> I don't want you working for me anymore. If you're not willing to learn something new, hell, I learn something new every day. I'm learning things we're out here with you in Santa Cruz, man. It's, it's, it's hard to believe a, you're learning anything from me, but <laughs> it's we're a, learning a lot. <laughs> it's amazing what goes on if you keep an open mind and you're willing to learn. And and with type A's, you know, we, hell, we think we know it all. So in law enforcement, what I told my people is, you know it all, you're either going to get yourself killed or one of your people killed, and I don't want you. So, you know, we had that open attitude that and how do you think that translates murph into business that that sort of mindset that you're you're not a know-it-all as a matter of fact you're the opposite of a know-it-all well in in business i mean we see there are changes every day in the way things are doing getting done you know the cloud i you know i I thought the cloud was those white things up in the air (laughs) exactly that rain every once in a while and look pretty it's got a lot to do with data storage and so forth the marketplace regardless of what your job is changes not maybe not daily, but regularly. And if you're not willing to learn and keep up with what's with with what new technology is coming down the road, with what's making it easier to do your job, maybe it's not better. Maybe it's a different way, but it might coincide with your business. You just got to keep that open mind and be willing to learn new things. Just because you're the boss doesn't mean you know it all. Hmm. That's probably the biggest leadership lesson I've had, you know, in my experience so far. And then maybe, you know, maybe, so that's great, I think, for an executive. Uh, maybe if I was a younger person in, in the beginning of my career and I look up to you guys, I mean, there's no question about it. You guys are uh, incredible American heroes and patriots. If I said, you know, I, I aspire to make a difference, whether it was in a business career or in law enforcement or whatever domain it be, like your son who's a doctor, whatever it is, and I want to learn from you how to have a career of service and, and results like you guys have had, what coaching would you give me in that circumstance? Well, um, it's basically, you know what? Learn. I used to tell the, the young kids would get hired, learn everything you can about your job. Learn, ask questions, get involved, take a chance, do whatever it takes. If you need to be out there day and night, uh, do it, but learn all aspects of your job. Because I used to see some of the young people coming in, and uh, oh, you know, I'm, boss, we can't, I can't do it. I got to go home early. It's like wow, you know. 
that just like you, you can't do that if you want to advance learn everything about the job ask questions get involved there's a great example i think where this young kid and i gotta throw it out there i think save some people's lives brand new out of the academy we're doing an operation he says hey boss i just saw there's a, we're gonna do this operation at this site so yeah there's a bank building like two blocks a block away do you mind if i go maybe get a talk to the bank get a vantage point getting on top of that building brand new agent we had been doing operations at this site for a long time nothing ever happened wrong and i was like wow great idea go ahead i signed another agent go out there so anyway he goes out there we're going to be doing the operation we we're getting ready to roll out the young kid calls me all excited, all frantic. Boss, boss, what? Wow, you're not going to believe what? I just saw a car come in. They're loading up automatic weapons in this car by him. And it was going to be, in other words, it's going to be a ripoff on us. They were going to mm-hmm. try to rob us. If he hadn't had that initiative, new agent, you know, a new employee saying, you know what? I'm going to try something different. You know? Fresh perspective. Yeah, fresh perspective. I think I would have got people killed. So that's just why, I, you know, everybody comes on and say, learn the job. That, to me, was the most important quality. Ask questions. It also leads me to something else. And I get criticized sometimes for being overly laudatory, but I don't give a shit. You guys are amazing. And, and one of the things that you're clearly amazing at is the ability to read people. You know, Javier, uh, working with these informants and, and Murph, you know, I mean, having to decide, are these people that are protecting us trustworthy or... Have they checked this car out so that it doesn't blow up or whatever? The, so whether you guys realize it or not, in my opinion, you both have, you know, fourth Dan black belts in human dynamics, in in reading people's character, in figuring out are people trustworthy, are they lying or not? And so what would you teach me about, you know, for lack of a better phrase, human dynamics and figuring out who you can trust and who's a good person and who's lying and who's not lying? Well, here in the U.S., quite honestly, I don't worry about that as much. Do we have agents that go bad? Yeah, but it's extremely small. It's not even 1% of the agents that are out there in DEA. I mean, we have an extremely professional organization, and I'm talking like I'm still with DEA. I've been retired over six years now, but, you know, once DEA, always DEA. So I approach everybody with the attitude that, hey, we're starting off the clean slate here. You know, I'll be straight up and honest with you, and I expect the same. And if it goes downhill, it's because you've done something. It's, Mm. you know, I will bend over backwards to help you do your job. So you don't start off. I've talked to some cops who they start off with a distrust, and you have to earn the trust. Not not so much for you? Well, when you're in the public, it's the other way around. Ah, okay. I see. So in (laughs) in the department. I see. Got it. Yeah. So uh, now when you're dealing with the public, you just assume everybody's going to lie to you. Because, you know especially in today's world where we're starting to legalize certain medicines and narcotics, you know, around the United States, people just lie. They don't want to get in trouble. Although, you know, now if it's legal, like here in California, people find out who you are. They like to tell you that it's legal here. Well, hell, I know that, you know, so, and that's a whole different topic. But if you believe what you hear on the street, you're going to get taken in a heartbeat. You're going to set yourself up where you're going to get hurt. You're going to get killed or somebody else is going to get killed. You know, you mentioned with the human dynamics. You know, that's a very important part. You know, with me, dealing with informants, because I always get asked that. You know what? Once I corroborated that 
information. That's what made it. Because, mm. I, like I said, three out of ten that would walk in, seven were going to be bullshit guys. They're trying to make some money off of you, trying to get some payment. Uh, so you have to, and it's in every aspect in business. Once you corroborate, you're dealing with somebody. Once he's telling you the truth, hey, this guy's trustworthy. You know how how many uh, <laughs> like I said bullshit guys are out there. We know, we know they're out there they're trying to take your money. And if, if you don't uh, do the background on them, you don't check them out. You need to, like I said, corroboration. Once you know they're, they're, they're good guys, then, then deal with them. But, you know, like I said, uh, you know, we've all had our experiences, you know, uh, people calling you on the phone, selling you, wow, uh, all sorts of products, right? Uh, so it's just, you, you gotta, like you said, just make sure, you know, corroborate, do whatever you need to do, make sure. You know, with the human dynamics also, uh, we were both blessed with extremely strong work ethics, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, <laughs> in our line of work, in our culture is extremely uh, important if you're going after a target because, you know, the things that we do save lives. Yeah. It's not creating a new product. It's, you know, it's not finding a better way to do things, although it could be, but it there is human life involved. So if you're demonstrating that strong work ethic, the dedication to your mission and, and reaching the conclusion, reaching your goals, especially if you're in a supervisory position and a main, if you're an executive level, especially, and your subordinates see that, you know, that's one of the things that if you earn their respect, it's like Javier said, he wanted to keep his boss happy. When you earn their respect, they want to keep you happy. You know, they want mm-hmm. you to be proud of what they did so that, you know, we had uh, the ability back when we were in Columbia to, uh, under fire, you know, handle death, um, be involved in things that nobody should ever be involved with. And, and, you know, quite honestly, as a Christian, I give all the glory to God for that. Cause I certainly don't have that. I'm not a Superman. I'm small town country boys, what I am. Um, but you know, that just carries the day right there. And as a boss, you gotta be able to make that decision. One of the, some of the worst bosses I've had, and we've all had them, right? Someone who cannot make a decision. I learned a lesson, and it's just, you know what, good or wrong, but people, I mean, I want to know, all right, we're going here or we're not, we're, or make that decision. People are yeah. waiting for it. I've seen just too many people that cannot cannot do that, and, you know, that's just a you know a disservice. And it's, uh, you know, it's a decision-making, if it's going to involve danger to a person, it's different than just making a decision in an everyday thing. You know, he's talking about people that just, it's an everyday thing. There's no life involved. <laughs> they just can't make a decision. Well, and in your case, you know, and this is a big thing I want to touch on with you guys, uh, is sort of this theme of fear and courage, right? Decisions that you're making, Javier, to your point, in many cases, certainly on Escobar, and I know you guys, in a 40-year career, you worked a couple other cases, there's life and death many times at stake you're trying to capture somebody who's who's a killer or or they're the agents and other people involved with the mission whose lives may be in danger and so whether it's the public or whether it's fellow law enforcement their lives at stake in many of those decisions and so as as an executive how do you make those decisions when life hangs in the balance you know you look at all circumstances and and some of our decisions are being made less than a second you know, whereas that decision is going to be pondered on by uh, courts for <laughs> many years mm-hmm. to come. You got to be ready. That's why we train. 
that's why uh, we have specialized training, and uh, it's 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 a hard decision. But you know, in the rare circumstances, if, if this decision is life or death, you're going to have to make it. You know, you know. I remember when this young agent wanted to be a D agent. I talked to her; she was all excited. I'm putting in. I said, "If if you had to, and I hope it never happens, can you take a human life?" And she said, "No, of course not." I said, "Wow, okay, then we we got to re rethink this." But maybe the, you the, need to stay behind the desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got to rethink. Yeah, exactly. There's positions you don't carry gun, but in a life and death situation, you're going to make that decision. And sometimes, like I said, you just got to look at all the totality of the circumstances. And as long as you know what I I used to tell people, you're acting in good faith. And in any mm. job, as long as you're acting in good faith, you made that decision. It, didn't go the right way, but you did not mean it to go the wrong way. So this is where, like I said, your, your training is going to come into playing. But uh, it's, like I said, life or death, you got you to gotta do it. And what would you want me to know as a civilian about um, people who serve, particularly in, in federal law enforcement, that maybe I, I wouldn't know or wouldn't maybe seem obvious to me? Well, um, extreme, there's an, in DEA, there's an extremely strong work ethic. These men and women, the agents and the analysts and the diversion investigators and the support personnel are dedicated to the mission. Now, mission, any job that you have as a public employee, you're a public servant. Some people look at that as, as a derogatory term, you know, oh, you're just a public servant. Well, I wore that as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And and I I say the same thing to every other person that's out there serving the public right now. Be proud of what you are because you have been entrusted with helping to protect your fellow man. You know, even the Bible says there, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for another. That's what these people are willing to do. So um, just like Javier said, you got to understand what you're getting into, though. When we, when I first went to the DEA Academy, I've been a cop for almost 12 years and, and we go in that first week and we've got this guy in our class. It's, he's a scientist by education and profession. I have no idea why he wanted to be a DEA agent, but there he is. He's top physical conditioning. He's, he's acing every test we're taking. And then we go to the pistol range and he stopped. He's like, why do I need to know how to shoot a gun? Hmm. He didn't know we carried guns. Huh? So, you know, it wasn't the next day. He just disappeared from the academy. He'd packed up and left. Wow. So you got to know what you're getting into. But, you know, don't be proud. If you're willing to serve your, your fellow man, are you going to get wealthy? Absolutely not. Are you going to starve? Probably not. You know, you're going to eat. You just got to use your brain and not be a spendthrift. But uh, know what you're getting into. I, I'm reminded of a religious philosopher's words, Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's right. Yeah, very true. That's very right. True. Yeah. I didn't know he said that. Gentlemen, is there anything else you guys would like to touch on before we wrap? No, I just want to thank you all. And uh, like I said, it, it's, it's been a, you know, it's been a great career. I've enjoyed it. We're, 
enjoying the fruits of it uh, right now, but uh, in a very surprising way, very right? Surprising, <laughs> yeah. But you know what? And there's a, another saying. I don't know what uh, Mexican philosopher said it, but you know what? You gotta suffer to appreciate. Mm. If you've never suffered, you will never appreciate. And and for me, you know, there there is an old saying out there that says, "If you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life." We found the jobs. Yeah. We did it. You know, we were both agents for. We were both in law enforcement for thirty eight years each. Never wanted to retire from DEA. Who knew this would come along down the road? But, yeah. You know, having said all that, thank you very much for having us on the show. It's been an honor for us to meet you and get to hang out with you for a day or two. And and. Uh, God bless you, man. And now I'm ready to, uh, you know, look at your wine cellar. I saw some <laughs> great uh, wines you got down there, buddy. A couple of nice Italian reds oh, down there. I saw that. <laughs> well, guys, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I love you guys. You're incredibly inspiring. And, and I know not just to me, but literally to millions around the world. I think you are incredible servants. And I think you have shown and demonstrated leadership and courage at a level that most of us can't really understand. I deeply appreciate your willingness to share that. And uh, I really believe you are true American and frankly, human heroes. So thank you. And thank you for spending this time with me. It's been incredible. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yep. It has. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Well, there they are. And I just got to tell you, it has been an incredible experience um, becoming a podcaster. Um, we are just celebrating now our third anniversary or third birthday um, in podcasting. And um, the fact that I get to hang out with American heroes like this and to share these dialogues with you has become an incredible gift in my life. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, being with me and for uh, hopefully enjoying these conversations with some of the most legendary people, frankly, on the planet. And if you know somebody who would enjoy this episode, uh, why not share it with them? We appreciate it deeply when you share our episodes on social media and tell your friends. And also, if you like these kinds of conversations, hit subscribe on whatever your podcast player is so that you never miss an episode. And I'd also encourage you to visit us at lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and sign up for our newsletter. I promise we'll only send you stuff we think is great and we will never sell your address to anybody else. All right. We would like to thank the real DEA narcos themselves, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, You do us all proud to learn more about their book and their public speaking and teaching. Why not visit them at DEANarcos.com? That's DEANarcos.com. OneLifeFullyLived.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Why not subscribe to Lockhead on Marketing, my new number one uh, business charting podcast on Apple, Lockhead on Marketing. And if you like conversations like this, why not check out my friend Jordan Harbinger and his podcast? He's got one of the top podcasts on the planet. He has riveting conversations with riveting people all the time. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Growwire.com is what legendary people are reading. Uh, Check it out. Um, And if you're looking to take your career to a whole new level or you're a younger person entering the job market, uh, why not visit crash.co slash different. That's crash.co dot different. And there you'll uh, learn to uh, pick up a copy of the new handbook, Crash Your Career by my friends uh, at Crash. Check it out. Is it time to scale yourself? Why not 
uh, investigate the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. Themarketingjournal.org. Visit them on the internet today. It's what legendary marketing people are reading. And my dear friends at the Front Row Foundation, making a difference for people uh, facing down the potential of the end of their life. This is an incredible organization. Please visit them today, frontrowfoundation.org. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It is highly flammable. Flammable? Flammable? <laughs> Remember to thank somebody in law enforcement. Buy John's crazy socks. Uh, listen to Led Zeppelin. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.